This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, and I'm a PhD student in Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Radha Kumar on their new book, entitled Police Matters, The Everyday State and Caste Politics in South India, 1900-1975, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Dr. Kumar is Assistant Professor of History at Syracuse University. Welcome to the New Books Network, Radha. Thank you so much for inviting me, Shohini. Lovely to talk to you here today. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Um, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey? How did you become a historian and how did your research interests evolve over the years to give shape to this book? Uh, So I grew up in India. I did my bachelor's in history in Chennai. And then I went to Delhi University for my master's long back, about 20 years back. And, you know, subaltern studies was the rage. And I was really deeply influenced by that uh, and continued to be influenced by that when I moved to the U.S. several years later to do my Ph.D. Uh, And so, I mean, I think the influence was in this attempt to try and understand, uh, you know, the subaltern. And to me, I identified that at that moment in my career as you know, uh, the lower caste and lower class communities in rural India. So I think methodologically, it was exciting for me to try and retrieve the history of people who had not written much or, you know, where there was a need to read, uh, you know, with and against the archival grain to understand what was going on. So to me, that was interesting uh, intellectually as a project. But having said that, you know, when I started the project, I actually defined it not as a history of policing, but as a history of certain caste communities. So to that extent, I'm quite sure I was mimicking the state archives, which can be very seductive. So I was also seeing like a state to perceive certain caste communities as especially involved in the politics of violence. Uh, And what I was, I think, failing to see was the role of the policeman or the extent to which state power itself shapes this sort of caste identity. Uh, And, you know, partially, of course, it was, uh, you know, advisors nudging me away from that sort of story that uh, made me aware of the need to uh, be a little more critical about my sources. But in addition, there was an archival 
accident or, you know, a lucky accident where apart from looking at the fairly standard archives that historians go to, you know, the British Library in London, the Tamil Nadu archives in Chennai, I had also been trying to find some sort of records that were a little more decentralized. And I had heard here and there from, you know, uh, people in the police that police stations themselves contained records that went back to the colonial era and that would have a lot to say about what I did. And through the first couple of years of my archival research, I, you know, reached out to many people in the police trying to find those kinds of sources and with no luck until finally one person who was, you know, part of the senior uh, police cadre in Chennai gave me permission to access uh, to access police station records in rural Tamil Nadu. And when I went into these stations, I really couldn't believe what I saw because there were these really uh, textured notes from the 1920s onwards, at least in the stations that I went to, that really spoke about a state, a colonial state that was very much present in the countryside, that was very much concerned about everyday caste politics, and that was shaping them. And so once I had looked at these archives, I started you know, looking at what I was seeing, even in the centralized archives, very differently. And I realized that the story I had to say was one about policing and not one about caste. I mean, or at least policing and caste and not just about caste. And having said that, I feel like I must point out that the archival accident has a lot to do with my position as, you know, uh, belonging to... Chennai's upper class, upper caste groups and having the sort of linkages that would allow me to access these records. So anyway, so once I looked at this, I sort of uh, flipped the lens, as it were, to see how the police function in social politics and how policing as a form of power shapes caste politics and is shaped by caste politics. And then that's how I ended up with this book where I talk about how the two uh, sort of reinforce each other at the everyday as well as exceptional levels. That's fascinating. Um, Three primarily Tamil-speaking districts of the then Madras Presidency, namely Madurai, Thiru, Nelveli and Ramanathapuram, serve as the site of your book. Um, Could you tell our audience what prompted you to focus attention on these regions and, and how did this choice influence the development of the book? I think there my, you know, my personal biography sort of uh, mirrors my professional trajectory, which is that I grew up in Chennai. uh, And when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s in Chennai, the incidents of caste violence, and, you know, it's important to note that these were typically framed as caste violence, not as much as state violence, Uh, But both the news media as well as films were very much preoccupied with this question of caste violence in the southern Tamil districts. And there was a sense in which the south, and by south I mean south of Chennai, these southern districts were framed as the other to Chennai, right? So Chennai was the modern, the literate, uh, the secular, but... 
மதுரை திருநெல்வேலி அண்ட் ராமநாதபுரம் வேர் யூ நோ தோஸ் ரீஜன்ஸ் தட் குட் நாட் ஷேக் ஆஃப் தேக்கல்ஸ் ஆஃப் காஸ்ட் பாலிடிக்ஸ் அண்ட் ஸோ இட் வாஸ் வெரி மச் தி அதர் and you know there were numerous films about these i think some of them were also uh, remade in hindi but so i was curious about this culture which to me i guess in some ways was so distant right as i started because here i was uh, you know in chennai a woman you know violent politics is in a sense complete anathema and so i wanted to study it but then as i studied it i realized that to the extent that we acknowledge state power you know the politics of chennai were not that distant from the politics of madurai tirunelveli and ramanadapuram the politics of the urban literate elite are not that different from the politics of you know the rural uh communities that are part of caste because the two really influence each other and i'll just give one example here which is that in one of my chapters i talk about the fir now anyone from south asia is aware of the fir and the sort of foreboding sense of foreboding that the fir triggers in somebody having said that for many of us at least until the last 10 years uh the fir was also a very distant thing right it was not something that actually affected urban communities upper caste communities and so forth uh, because it was an instrument of police power and police corruption and to that extent misuse of the fir was always framed as something that was distant it was not part of how we function having said that the reason the fir acquired the sort of power it did in the early 20th century is the fact that writing is privileged as an instrument of colonial governance and policing writing was such an important part of understanding colonial reality and so police power in fact stems from how you know the state uh manifests and dissimulates its own power and so um you know i would say in a sense my project attempts to bridge the gap between these two worlds that are seen as so distant you know upper caste literate uh nonviolent civil politics versus rural lower caste violent politics are in fact in a tight embrace is what i try and show in the book yeah Um you write uh, in the book that the colonial police exercised an everyday presence and brought epistemic as well as legal violence into the Tamil countryside. Um could you shed light on the interrelated workings of epistemic and legal violence um and how did they advantage routine policing in colonial South India? Yes, absolutely. So here the first thing I want to draw on is a large legal studies scholarship that is emphasizing the extent to which the law itself is underwritten by sovereign power or violence so you know there's a lot of scholarship dealing with things like uh, you know the death sentence torture and so forth to show how you know law is not uh, you know 
separated from violence, that there is violence in the law itself. Uh, so this is quite different from popular discourse that often attributes police violence to bad actors. So our typical reaction very often, whatever, you know, whether it's instances of police violence in the US or in India, often the first uh, point of scrutiny is the individual police officer who is accused of this. But, you know, policing studies will show that it is not a problem of rotten apples. It is the police as an institution that manifest legal violence. But it's not just that the police as an institution are the rotten apple in law. The law itself as an institution manifests violence. So that is one part of what I write, which fits into the scholarship to show that police violence is legal violence and not attributable to individual subaltern bad apples. The second thing which I'm trying to show is that even legal violence reflects or embodies the sort of axes of power that run through society. So it doesn't stand completely independent of that because policing draws on certain broader discourses about caste inequality, class inequality, gender inequality, or uh, race inequality to choose its objects of coercion. Because, you know, policing is discretionary power. A police man or police woman chooses their target before a crime has happened, before due process has happened. And that decision does not happen in a discursive void. It does draw on broader societal norms. And therefore, policing is not just legal violence. It is also epistemic violence. It also targets certain women, certain sort of women. So, for example, policing literature on 19th century UK will talk about how the police selected uh, drunkards or prostitutes to pay extra attention to them. Likewise, I talk about how policing targets certain caste communities, certain class communities to, uh, you know, as the objects of their coercion. And the final point that I want to make here is that uh, the global policing literature very much concentrates on the city. Uh, This is partly about, you know, how policing is... uh, was visible in the 19th century Western world versus in the colonial world. But it's also a question of archival access. You know, what is available is very often writing about cities. But what I am uh, looking at is policing in the countryside. And the reason why policing in the countryside is not really studied much is partly that, you know, colonial police forces were very thin in the countryside. Uh, And they don't leave behind that many written records. But what this also means is that their need to see like a state is much higher. That is, they necessarily have to be very selective about whom they can watch on the beat, about whose processions they can monitor and whom they just have to let be. And therefore, in colonial rural India, the necessity to... Uh, optimized policing resources was very high 
and it drew considerably on caste knowledges. Uh, and to that extent, the Madras police in colonial India were agents of epistemic violence because they are sort of reanimating this idea of certain castes as criminals, certain castes as mercantile and so forth. And sorry, so one last thing that this suggests is also that therefore the colonial state was not a thin presence in the Tamar countryside. They were very much crucial actors in uh, bringing in place a new political economy, a new form of circulation of commodities and policing of labor. Uh, so yes. Mm -hmm. The the colonial police, you write, um, objectified and categorized Indian subjects on the basis of caste, and this objectification and the hierarchy it reified also reflected among their own rank and file. Um, how do you think this uh, composition contributed to caste-based violence and dehumanization of Thevers and Dalits um, validated by caste? Absolutely. So here... Uh the scholarship that I am drawing on and contributing to is a recent one, especially in anthropology, but also in history, about the blurred lines between state and society, which is that you cannot uh, understand the state purely by its central institutions, but you also need to think about how the state is present in societal imaginings, in everyday actions, on the margins, and so forth. So in the context of my work, how I'm interpreting this is you cannot see the police institution as distinct from society. And in fact, in many parts of the country, for many communities, the police are a very real, very everyday presence and everyday state presence. I mean, they're one of the more important state agents with whom people interact. And the police as police are not state agents who are disconnected from their place in a social order. So an upper caste policeman is upper caste and a policeman, right? And to that extent, state power is absolutely in tune with social hierarchies. And so uh, through the 20th century, what you have at different moments is very different composition of the state police that reflects broader trends. And so in colonial India, favors were among the caste communities who were criminalized under the Criminal Tribes Act of 1911. I mean, it was the Criminal Tribes Act was brought uh, to Madras presidency only in 1911. And several Tevar communities were criminalized under this act. So, you know, the, the interactions, the everyday as well as exceptional interactions between the police and Tevars relies as much on, you know, the police's individual policemen's caste subjectivities as it does on the criminalization of Tevers. Now, this changes after 1915, especially in the 1970s, when the Tevers, as a powerful voting bloc, acquire a lot more uh, social prominence and presence. And at this point, uh, Tevers are an important presence in the state police. And so at this point, the sort of violent interactions between 
policemen and uh, Dalits really increases also as a reaction by the 1980s to uh, Dalit movements and Dalit assertion in Tamil Nadu as in many other parts of the country. Uh, so a couple of final quick points here is that a lot of um, you know human rights scholarship, for instance, attributes the police violence against Dalits in contemporary Tamil Nadu to the fact that there are tevars in the police force. In a sense, the presence of certain communities is seen as tainting the police force. But I do want to emphasize that there is no such thing as a nonviolent police force. There is no such thing as policing that stands independent of social hierarchies. So the fact that the police institution since the 1980s in Tamil Nadu has tevars is more an indication of how policing is seen as an important instrument of power in contemporary society, not that somehow Tevers have entered the police force and adulterated it or tainted it. Uh, but yeah, maybe I'll stop there. Um, as one goes through your book, it becomes evident that Orientalism and casteism um, were very much activated through colonial policing. Um, I was wondering if you could reflect on consequences um, produced by the dangerous interaction of the two in rural Madras. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, here I will repeat what several others have said, that tradition is not the static remnant from the past. In 19th and 20th century India, tradition has been actively constituted as the other of the modern, right? So works like Lata Manish show how it is precisely a certain modernizing discourse that creates other practices and other forms of identity as tradition and sort of cements that. And I find that uh, dynamic and operation quite a bit when we look at colonial policing in 20th century Madras, which is that there is this understanding of caste as an immutable essence, right? That, of course, Nadars and Marabas will fight against each other because that is it. There is no changing that. And so there's a very Orientalist uh, framing of how the police or how the colonial state views society. And this Orientalist framing is embodied by native policemen. And in 20th century Madras, in the period I study, there are all policemen. There are no women in the force until much later. And these are native policemen. So the force is a very, uh, very, Europeans occupy just the top ranks. And so the bulk of everyday policing is carried out by native subjects who appropriate this Orientalist framing of caste as immutable essence. So it really, uh, caste becomes a very salient, perhaps the most salient identity that animates the politics of public spaces, which is what the police monitor. And so, for example, uh, you know, if if a certain family wants to take a procession for a wedding through the street, they have to get permission from the local police. 
But when you look at records from the 1920s and 30s in rural Tamil Nadu, the police make every one of these decisions through a very orientalist lens that looks at certain castes as impulsive, irrational, violent actors because of their caste identity. And it does not allow for any nuance in this, which means that the police give permissions to some communities, don't give permission to other communities. They send uh, armed constables to some gatherings. They don't send armed constables to some other gatherings. So just simply through their way of working, through their everyday decisions, whom they watch on the beat, whose com- which communities have permission to gather, and so forth, they're really uh, giving new life to uh, caste politics, especially in public spaces. Right. Um, you also reflect on the neglected figure of the rural constable in the history, um, historiography of caste and its silence on routine policing. Um, could you tell our audience in what ways does your book work towards addressing this gap and the silence? Thank you. Yes. So law enforcement is actually quite heavy on paperwork, but a lot of this paper is destroyed which is to say that, you know, the colonial policeman actually had to write nonstop because the colonial policeman was a very split figure. He had access to legitimate state violence, but he was also seen as a native actor who, uh, with a cultural proclivity to violence. And so to police the colonial policeman, he was told to write a lot. So, you know, every station has somebody called a station writer whose business it is to keep uh, in written record, not just the regular acts of investigation or surveillance, but even what the policeman does when he comes in, when he goes out, because writing is an instrument of policing the policeman. Having said that, just the nature of archives is such that a lot of the policemen's acts on the beat don't have to be captured in writing. And so they are lost to the historical record in some senses. And even many of the records that the colonial policemen maintained in his police station were typically sent to district offices, you know, every quarter or every month or every week, some of them. And once they were sent, most of the records were destroyed. And so what you have typically available as records of policing in colonial Madras are abstracted statistics and annual reports released at the highest levels. And these are the most common records. Now, of the records that the policemen generated every day in the station, there was only one that wasn't destroyed every few weeks or every few months. And these were called the part four records. And they are one of five parts of the station's journal that is maintained. And, you know, so there's one part which records the crimes that are registered in the station, one part that records uh, the, you know, the rowdy sheeters or the bad characters in that station and so forth. So there are five parts. And the fourth part is a running history of the surveillance activities of the precincts, the jurisdiction of that station. Now, the part four records were meant to stay permanently in the police station. 
and this is a function of the colonial state's distance from the rural population because they were meant to serve as a guide for every new police inspector that would be assigned that station so the part for records alone survive from whenever you know from the 1920s or so unless you know some stations were moved and so they were destroyed some stations didn't care and they were destroyed but in many stations the part for records stay and the part for records are really thick in local detail so for example one inspector writes and i'm quoting from one of the part for records that i find you know ishwar sami of tammanaikan patti village is a pakka drunkard his movements should be watched and this is very characteristic of how the part for records were written they really show an intimate knowledge of rural india of individual villages of their role in the colonial political economy of their caste demographics and it was because of accessing these part for records that i got a sense of how law enforcement worked or how the police functioned as agents of state and caste authority and in many ways policing is very different from let's say legislation or litigation which produce records that are centralized so you know legislation pr- produce records at central houses in delhi or calcutta or madras and so there's a, there's ways of studying it litigation has its own set of records law enforcement is much thinner and so while you have many ethnographies it is much harder in a sense to retrieve an ethnography of the past and the part four records obviously capture only a slice of it and that is what i'm trying to retrieve <laughs> finally what i would say here is that the police constables themselves in beatrice jorigwe's framing are subalterns of the state so they are not the highest level officials and so their own position reflects the inequalities within society uh you know there is a lot of provisional authority that is in them again to quote her work and you know when you think of the police detective there's something romantic about this lone crusader who fights against state corruption and societal inequalities and you know the police detective is a very glamorous figure in fiction you know in india abroad and so forth but the constable in some senses is a mirror of social inequality and therefore it is a harder figure to shine a light on uh but to the extent that we are able to retrieve the voice of the constable it is uh an index of you know social inequalities themselves and the particular axis that i focus on is caste this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Um, you write in the first chapter of your book that under colonial rule, the police were also monitoring the rural economy. 
and functions through surveillance. Um, how do you think caste figure in colonial political economy and how was caste-based objectification weaved into development in post-colonial India? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, of course, scholarship uh, now for some decades now that shows that industrialization and the coming of a new capitalist economy did not dissolve caste uh, loyalties and communities. In fact, they strengthened them. And you see this dynamic in Tamil Nadu also, where there were strong overlaps uh, in the rural economy. So laborers were often Dalits belonging to, you know, Pallar or Pariyar communities. Landholders belonged to higher Brahmin or Pillai communities. Traders were often Chettiars or mercantiles. And so since the role of the colonial police was to ensure the smooth functioning of the colonial economy, it was inevitable that the colonial police also monitored certain castes uh, and, you know, used that knowledge, colonial knowledge of caste formations to train their gaze. Having said that, policing itself strengthened this tie between caste and class because, for example, the police provided protection to Chetia's strongholds in Ramanathapuram district, which is, you know, an important uh, center for Chetia's who were a powerful mercantile community. But Chetia's asked for policing protection as Chetia's. You know, they said, we need the police to look out and send extra beats to monitor these maravars who will steal our property. So caste also operates through the language of class interest to ensure uh, its survival in uh, colonial Madras. So, you know, Chetiars were a powerful community even before the 20th century and before they used policing, but their ability to survive as a uh, you know, a community with thriving mercantile interests in some measure owes to the fact that they can tap on policing to protect them. And this sort of overlap or the ties between caste, class and policing is again very visible when we look at the Nadars who start off as a more subaltern community and, uh, you know, they Sanskritized in the late 19th century as has been studied to become traders, to urbanize, to convert to Christianity and so forth. But once they, you know, make the shift, they also draw on policing to ensure that their shops, their bazaars get extra protection, that they have certain relationships with the local policemen to ensure that their property interests are protected. So policing in many ways, uh, because it uses the lens of caste, it contributes to uh, this identity between caste and class in rural Tamil Nadu. After independence, you know, in the colonial police's imperative or mandate is quite different. It is no longer as much about ensuring the smooth functioning of the economy, but rural India becomes a site of state pedagogy. And in uh, Madras state, this is especially visible because it's one of the few states across India that resolutely held on to the project of prohibition of alcohol. 
And so prohibition really became the site of uh, contestation and uh, collaboration between state and society, where, you know, there is this continuous presence of discretionary police power in villages towards both uh, you know, policing uh, illicit brewing of alcohol and consumption and trading, but also, you know, who gets to hold power in rural politics also plays through, you know, this presence of the policing uh, of the police in rural Tamil Nadu. Um, you note that acts of routine violence were attempted to be masked by language of law and order, and. Um, accompanied um, custodial violence in both colonial and post-colonial India. Um, how did caste feature in such acts of routine violence and, and how do you think it was resisted by those most disempowered by the caste system? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are many ways in which this plays out and I'll probably talk about a couple of them here now. So one is conversion. So in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there were many low-caste communities in the southern districts of uh, Madurai and Ramanathpuram and Trinalveli that converted to Christianity or to Islam. And so conversion itself is one form of resistance. But as uh, Susan Bailey and others have said, conversion doesn't mean disavowing the value of rank in society. Conversion was about asserting a higher rank. And so conversion didn't necessarily mean stepping out of caste politics altogether. So you have many communities, you know, Nadars, uh, Pallars, uh, Parayars and so forth, who in different villages in small groups convert to Christianity or Islam. But resisting caste hierarchies doesn't stop at that moment of conversion. After that, it is sort of materialized by asserting certain spaces. So, uh, a, a, you know, a certain Dalit community that converts to Islam wants to bury its dead in a certain, uh, you know, cremation site once they have converted. Or a Nadar community that has converted wants to be able to take their wedding processions through a different village street. Or, you know, a community that has converted wants to build a church near the village temple. And so conversion is also then followed by these different acts that attempt to plug that caste now higher position in local hierarchies, which are very specialized. So there is a certain village street, there are certain castes that have superior access to that street. Now, this matters because the police, in their function as the purveyors of public order, are uh, in a position to put down these attempts to claim public space. And so what we see is this running thread of different caste communities that try and claim space only to be put down by the police. And they don't all always get put down, right? So this is a running thread for a few years, they get put down. And then, you know, one community might be powerful enough to actually build its mosque or build its church. But the fact that caste resistance, you know, after conversion is uh, displayed by this claim to public property, public space means that the police play 
an important role in uh, you know arbitrating it and often uh, they put down these attempts by saying that this is disturbing order but of course order is a maintenance of the status quo and so that's one sort of dynamic the other is agrarian conflict where when low caste agrarian laborers uh, seek higher wages higher share of the harvest land rights and so forth this is also seen as disruption of order both in colonial and post colonial india and so you know when you have a higher caste police inspector send his constables to make sure that no trouble within courts breaks out during harvest what that means is uh, suppressing caste resistance and caste movements and yeah. finally one way of resistance you know apart from um you know this claim to space and so forth is actually in in gossip in rumor so custodial violence unlike these spaces uh, claims to public space happens within the closed doors of custody and custodial violence often targets members of lower castes and classes but people do resist it and they resist it by talking about police in a certain way so that it's a very uh you know the fact that the police can exercise this authority that is backed by the state is very much understood when you uh read these um you know documentations of the sort of gossip and rumor that is circulating among subaltern communities in the local tea shop in the local coffee shop and so forth yeah yeah thank you for the very complex and nuanced answer um you write that political parties played a key role in organizing subaltern resistance to the police force um could you reflect on the nature of such political organizing and the creative strategies that were employed to actively resist police violence yes absolutely i mean here i do have to i think spend a minute on the specificity of the madras context where caste based mobilization was uh, quite uh, strong and quite early and this is especially obvious when evr periyar starts the self respect movement in the early 20th century and establishes the dravida karagam and uh, so there is a very vibrant movement that resists caste hierarchy and there are two different strands of this movement in colonial madras one is the elite non brahmin justice party that is simply seeking uh, equal representation to the brahmins who dominated most of the high ranked positions in colonial bureaucracies and other professions so you have the justice party that is not questioning the caste system per se but that wants uh you know an equal position commensurate with the place of upper caste non brahmins in uh, madras but you also had periyar's movement which was a lot more radical and which sort of uh, questioned patriarchy capitalism as well uh, religion in its entirety as well as the caste system itself and periyar's movement was not about improving the position of one particular caste as much as it was about eliminating the caste order itself 
and so there was there are you know radical as well as moderate strands to caste uh, assertion in madras even under colonial rule after independence this is visible uh, you know in the strength of caste based political parties like the dmk which is quite powerful even by the second general elections in tamil nadu but uh, by 1967 the dmk came to power and you know uh, the congress is totally not present in tamil nadu since then but what this also means is that there are a multiplicity of political parties that represent specific caste interests and here the interaction with policing or the ties with policing are quite interesting on the one hand uh you know lower caste communities are able to articulate their resistance or their critique of police violence far more effectively in the public arena of politics than in courts i mean courts routinely sanction police violence as legitimate violence because uh ultimately all police violence most police violence is legal violence but in the political arena the evidentiary norms are very different and legitimacy becomes as much a question as legality and so it is possible for it is easier to articulate resistance against policing or a critique of policing in the public space of politics than it is within courts within courts judicial courts and it is easier to do this through the identity of caste because policing is epistemic violence policing does target certain groups within society more than others but judicial courts and judicial norms treat all liberal subjects as equal the reality as understood by those who feel the brunt of the police lathi is that policing targets some communities more than others and you know uh the recently released jabeem which you know has uh, very rightly been lauded across the country shows this very very starkly and so politics organized around caste make this very apparent they shed a harsh light on the fact that policing targets some caste over others so there's uh, so the two sort of feeded uh, fed off each other in post colonial tamil nadu which is that the the importance of caste based politics allowed subaltern communities to articulate their critique of police force but the continued existence and exercise of police force themselves give an impetus to caste based organizing because that is a way communi- communities can articulate resistance to policing and finally i would say that several communities uh moved away from the courts to also articulate their resistance in uh different ways and statue politics have been quite important here and again statue politics uh you know have been important in different parts of india uh especially you know with regard to ambedkar statues and so forth and in tamil nadu likewise the politics between tevars and dalits have often played out uh in a contest for public spaces and public statues so this is another way in which memories of police violence against certain caste communities are uh 
you know, sort of put out there for the public to see and remember. In the fourth chapter of your book, you note that public assembly in colonial Madras entailed long-term dealings with the police, which influenced caste politics. Um, would you like to elaborate on this for our listeners and also comment on how this um, how this relates to um, your book and, and the core concerns that you raise? Sure, thank you. So one point that I make in this chapter is that while the archival written record highlights the moment of riot when you know the police fire on a public gathering or a public gathering maybe throws stones on the policeman in fact the interaction between state and society in colonial india was not limited to that moment of riot and you know several historians have looked at, you know, stretching that moment of the riot, to look at its prehistory, to understand what went into it. And what I look at is the forms of interaction between the police and uh, caste communities to show that the riot is merely one moment in a much longer drawn out interaction between communities and the police. And the two other moments specifically that I want to highlight are the use of preventive policing and the use of punitive policing. So preventive policing, again, something that we are very familiar with in contemporary India, is uh, most obviously seen in the use of Section 144 of the Criminal Procedure Court, which gives a local magistrate the power to preemptively, without due process, uh, prevent a certain gathering, a certain act, to take place for a limited duration. So this is the use of emergency powers, but in a very limited setting. But what we find from colonial records is that the police used Section 144 and a similar other provision in the Police Act continuously uh, to keep a pulse on popular politics as well as modulate its tempo. So when they think that there is a uh, certain... uh, labor force, let's say, in a Madurai textile mill that is gathering for meetings every day and, you know, they worry that things might get a little out of control. And this is a very Orientalist concern that if you have a large uh, Orientalist and elitist concern that if you have a large laboring population together, they would, of course, turn violent. But based on that, they can preemptively stop the people from gathering by imposing Section 144 on that assembly. So the right to curtail public assembly was used very uh, in a very calibrated way by the Madras police to modulate both labor and caste politics. And sometimes what happened was that when they imposed Section 144, maybe an issue died away. Often they would reimpose it again and again, keep extending it, So that sometimes in one particular village, for a decade on end, members of one community just cannot gather in public spaces. So they're really reshaping how castes can practice their public politics. But sometimes it ends up sort of pushing the momentum of that particular grievance so that things escalate into a riot. And that riot is what we often see in police records But the riot doesn't come out of nowhere. And to think that the riot comes out of nowhere 
is to revert to a very uh, orientalist understanding of indian crowds but even after the riot the police continue to interact with the participants in riots in multiple ways so they typically charge all members of a public assembly whether they were uh, violent or not in courts and the numbers of people that are charged and sentenced is staggering year after year village after village in a small conflict between two caste communities you will find dozens of people who are charged and you know arrested they also install punitive police forces uh, in these villages where a riot has happened and what that means is that there is an extra armed police force that is stationed in that particular village for you know 6 months 2 years 3 years or so forth and once again shapes the possibility or inhibits the possibility of people of that community to come out so one thing that comes out here is that caste conflict is just not separate from state power to be able to assert their space or their presence in public spaces caste communities necessarily relied on uh, the police to either grant them that permission or not the second thing is that it is not a stark line that separates legal norm from violent exception so the police in colonial india was supposed to be a civil force that has modeled after the english bobby rather than the irish armed policemen and so this is something that they put into effect after a lot of debate what this meant was that the ordinary constable in uh, madras was only armed with a lathi not with firearms but repeatedly we find cases of caste communities that have gathered on a street and the policeman fires at them so how is that happening it's precisely because how caste knowledge shapes police practice so when certain caste communities gather in public spaces the police call for reserve police for armed police backup and are there preventively to ensure that no violence happens when things escalate even more they call the army so it's more of a sliding scale between the civil police who are armed with a lathi and armed reserves who are on horseback and carrying firearms it's not a stark line and so there are many instances of conflict where rather than just have the lathi wielding constable you have the armed police or the armed military reserves that have come in so this is also an argument about exception being normalized in colonial india um in your book you talk about policing after 1947 anti caste activism police violence and the lack of judicial redress um could you talk a little bit about the changing political landscape in independent india um how it influences uh, caste politics and its relationship with policing absolutely so i guess i would make two points here the first is that there is considerable continuity in how policing functions after 1947 and i'm not the first person to say that 1947 doesn't bring about a stark divide there's a lot of colonial continuity and with regard to policing this is manifest in you know the personnel the institutional structure continues pretty much unchanged the legal codes that inform policing are pretty much unchanged so it's the indian penal code 
and the Code of Criminal Procedure from the 1860s and the Police Act from the 1860s, all of them continue, and sorry, the Code of Criminal Procedure from 1898, all of these continue to inform how policing functions after 1947. So to that extent, the violence of the law as manifested in the figure of the policeman continues after 1947 to target certain castes, to use uh, you know, false FIRs against certain people, to torture certain people within cells, to fire on certain communities, and so forth. Having said that, the power of the vote exercises some limit on how much the police are in practice able to use force in in politics. So f- to just give a couple of examples, you know, we there are cases of custodial violence and custodial death through the 20th century. In a case of custodial death in colonial India, you know, there is a magisterial inquiry into it typically. But you know, and sometimes a judicial case, but often the police are acquitted. I mean, by and large, the police are acquitted in these cases. But there is nothing much that the public can do. But even from the 1950s, when there are cases of custodial violence, people do react. It's a very politicized subaltern public who are, in a sense, actively claiming their rights in independent India. So, for example, in 1959, there is a parlor laborer, a Dalit laborer who dies in custody. And immediately the people of the village gather. The victim's uh, nephew directly sends a telegram to the Ministry of Harijan Affairs. The telegram is circulated uh, you know, between different departments and uh, an inquiry is immediately launched. So to that extent, it is a very politicized public that is quite vocally challenging police violence. And this happens in many ways. So the DMK's critique of the Congress uh, government in the 1950s and 60s comes a lot from critiquing their use of police force on DMK cadres, which they present as illegitimate. So whether or not police violence is legal, and it continues to be legal in colonial India, it is certainly seen as illegitimate. And that is possible only in a democratic setting. And so to that extent, the power of the vote, which is actively used by subaltern communities, serves as a check on police force in post-colonial India. But finally, there are, of course, limits there, right? So the politics of public spaces are often gendered, which means women have fewer rights to sort of participate in many of these politics. And there is the, the, you know, electoral map of vote blocks. So what this has meant is that certain middle, middle caste communities have a lot of power, but Dalits have still... Uh, been at the receiving end of police violence, uh, even in independent India. So there are, of course, limits to how democracy works to limit police force. But, you know, there's a but there, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We're almost at the, nearing the end of this episode. Um, But before we close, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. So after 10 years of working on torture and firings, I really wanted to do something that was, you know, about rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. So I moved to studying about the Kaveri, which has been the subject of conflict. Well, I guess I moved back to popular politics and uh, contestation over the river, but it is a project on the Kaveri dispute between Tamil Nadu and Karnataka over the last 100 years. So starting from about the 1890s, what I am looking at is how colonial subjects as well as post-colonial citizens have claimed water and in so doing how they have claimed their you know, right, their political uh, participation and political voice. Sounds like a fascinating project. Thank you so much for this absolutely enriching conversation, Radha. I'm so glad we could talk about the book and I'm so glad it is out into the world. I'm I'm sure it is going to be read by very many people and um, yeah, and and cited heavily because your book deserves it. Thank you so much, Shohini. Thank you so much for inviting me once again. Thank you. Thank you.